0: At LuckyLandSlots.com, available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. In Greek mythology, Prometheus stole fire from Zeus and gave it to mankind. If you look throughout all of human history, there is really no more important development for people than when man learned to control fire. Fire allowed early hominids to stay warm during cold nights and to survive in colder environments than once would have been off-limits. Fire could be used to ward off predatory animals, and also as a tool that changed the way early man prepared food. It also changed the way people dealt with their dead. I've talked about early burial procedures in other shows, but the act of burning the dead is an even older practice, one that most scholars agree dates back to the early Stone Age. The earliest known cremated remains ever found were that of a partially burned woman near Mungo Lake, Australia, dating back at least 20,000 years. Ancient evidence of cremation can be found throughout the Middle East and Europe. The ancient Egyptians rejected cremation, since it interfered with their belief in the transmigration of the soul. But they did reserve the right to burn people alive who broke the rules. Early Persians, Phoenicians, and Romans did burn their dead. Along with many other cultures, it helped spread the practice throughout Europe up until the era of Christianity began. Early Christians held firm to the belief in the resurrection of the body, and according to those beliefs, to destroy the body with fire would mean committing that person's soul to eternal damnation. By the 5th century, burial became the only accepted method of dealing with the dead in Europe, and the practice of cremation fell out of favor. By the Middle Ages, cremating a body was forbidden by law in many places, and even punishable by death, although Catholic authorities did begin to use the practice occasionally as a form of punishment for Protestant heretics. We know of course about the burning of witches at the stake, although that practice was never as widespread as the movies would like us to believe. Cremation was also sometimes used by reigning Catholics on the bodies of those they had executed by other means, as a sort of double punishment. Not only would you be put to death by hanging, for example, but then they would burn your corpse to ensure your soul would find no comfort in the afterlife. Attitudes towards cremation began to slowly shift in the mid-17th century, when a few advocates began defying the church and suggesting the act as a viable method of body disposal. Even still, the practice remained largely forbidden throughout much of the 18th and 19th centuries. In 1873, a group of noted British physicians, including Sir Henry Thompson, Chief Physician to Queen Victoria, came together and formed their own advocacy group, the Cremation Society of Great Britain. This group contained many of Britain's most respected doctors and scientists, so when they came up with a list of reasons why cremation was both a sanitary and logical method of body disposal, the public took notice. Over the next few years, the group would experiment with the most effective means of cremation. They built their first modern crematorium in 1878, and by the following year they were ready for their first test subject, the body of a horse. In the years that followed, human experimentation began, and more and more people began turning to the newly built crematorium to dispose of their loved ones. Even still, there remained a lot of anti-cremation sentiment throughout England, But the growing number of advocates for the practice would eventually lead to the Cremation Act of 1902. After that, more and more crematoriums were built, and the practice would eventually become a normal part of most funeral homes. But fire is indiscriminate in who uses it. And although it would become part of normal legal funeral practices, some criminals have also found a use for it. Fire, as you can imagine... It's a pretty effective way to cover up any evidence that you did something wrong. For nearly 40 years, if you were to drive down Route 16 near Fayetteville, West Virginia, you could see a billboard bearing the images of five children, ranging in age from 5 to 14, with dark hair and solemn eyes staring back at you. The story behind that billboard dates back to a fire that destroyed a home in the small town on Christmas 1945 a fire that may have been deliberately set to cover the sins of the past. I'm Nate Hale, and is it getting hot in here or is it just me? And this is The Conspirators. George Sodder was born Giorgio Sadu in Tula, Sardinia in 1895. He immigrated to the U.S. with his older brother in 1908. Although upon reaching Ellis Island, George's brother immediately returned to Italy, leaving George there all alone. He found work as a laborer on the Pennsylvania Railroad and eventually moved to Smithers, West Virginia. There, he first found work as a truck driver, then eventually started his own trunking company, hauling dirt for construction, and later coal and freight. It was there in Smithers that George met a local shopkeeper's daughter, Jenny Cipriani, who had immigrated from Italy when she was three. George and Jenny married, and between 1923 and 1943, they had ten children. They moved to the Appalachian town of Fayetteville, West Virginia, which had a small but active Italian immigrant community. They bought a two-story timber frame house two miles north of town. As they settled in and George built his business, he became a respected member of the community. Throughout his life, he would never speak much about his youth or the circumstances that led him to leaving Italy. But even though George was notoriously silent about his past, he was also rather notably vocal about pretty much everything else. George held strong opinions about everything from business, current events, and politics especially Italian politics, and a severe dislike for the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. George often spoke out against Mussolini to other members of his community, something that may have come back to haunt him. In the months before the fire, a couple strangers came by the solder house, seeming to signal that something bad was coming. First there was a man who came to the house in the fall asking for hauling work. He wandered with George around to the back of the house, where he pointed out two separate fuse boxes and said, "'This is going to cause a fire someday.'" That was odd, George thought, because he just recently had the wiring checked by the local power company, and they hadn't said anything was wrong. Not long after, another man arrived on their front porch attempting to sell the family life insurance. When George declined, the man became irate. "'Your goddamn house is going up in smoke,' he warned, "'and your children are going to be destroyed.'" You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. George ordered the man to get off his property, but later on he just shrugged off the man's threats. George had gotten into heated arguments with other members of the Italian community over his feelings about Mussolini, and nothing ever came of it before. Just before Christmas, a couple of George's older sons told him they noticed a strange man parked along US Highway 21, intently watching the younger kids as they came home from school. George went out to look for the man, but when he got there, he was gone. Christmas Eve came and the Sodders celebrated. Seventeen-year-old Marion, the oldest daughter, had gotten a job working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville. And she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha 12, Jenny 8, and Betty 6, with new toys she'd bought them there. Jenny let the children stay up a little later than normal to play with their new toys. 14-year-old Maurice and 10-year-old Lewis were told to tend their cows and chickens before bed. Nine of the ten solder children were home that evening. Their oldest son, Joe, was away in the army. By 10 o'clock, they were all settled in for the night. At 12.30 Christmas morning, the telephone began ringing. Jenny answered it. An unfamiliar female voice asked for a name she didn't know. In the background, she could hear raucous laughter and glasses clinking. Jenny told the woman she had the wrong number and hung up. Jenny headed back to bed. Then she noticed all the downstairs lights were on, the front curtains were open, and the front door was unlocked. Her daughter Marion was asleep on the sofa in the living room. She assumed the other kids were upstairs in bed. Jenny turned out the lights, shut the curtains, locked the door, and returned to her bedroom. She had just settled in and began to doze when she was awakened by a loud thud on the roof, and then a rolling noise. About a half hour later, she was roused once again by the smell of smoke. She got up again to check and discovered the room George used for an office was on fire right around the telephone line and fuse box. She ran to wake George and he in turn woke their two older sons, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr. George Sr., Jenny, and four of their children, Marion, 2-year-old Sylvia, and the two older boys managed to escape the house. They shouted frantically for the five other children upstairs but received no answer and were unable to head up after them because the stairway was on fire. John would later tell police that he tried to go up to the attic and alert his siblings but he didn't see them. George tried to save them. He broke a window to re-enter the house, cutting a swath of skin from his arm. He couldn't see anything through the thick smoke and flames which by now had swept through all the downstairs rooms. He was frantic, certain that Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty must be trapped upstairs in one of the two bedrooms on either end of the hallway. But with the stairway completely engulfed in flames, there was no way to get to them from inside the house. George raced back outside, hoping to climb up and reach them through an upstairs window. But the ladder he normally kept propped against the side of the house was mysteriously missing. He got an idea to drive one of his two coal trucks up to the house and climb on top of it to reach the upper window. But even though both trucks had been in perfect working order the day before, neither would start now. He tried to scoop water from a rain barrel, but it was frozen solid. Everything seemed to be working against him that night. Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department, but the operator didn't answer. A neighbor who saw the flames from a nearby tavern tried to call for help, too, but again there was no response from the operator. The exasperated neighbor drove into town and tracked down Fire Chief F.J. Morris. Fayetteville only had a part-time fire department, and they operated by a phone tree system, where one firefighter phoned another. Although the fire department was only two miles away, the crew didn't arrive until nearly seven hours later at 8 a.m., Morris claimed part of the delay was because he didn't know how to drive the fire truck and had to wait until one of the other firefighters who did know how to drive it got there. Frustrated, all the Sodders could do was stand and watch the fire consume the house. By morning it was a pile of smoldering rubble and the Sodders were certain their five children had perished in the blaze. By 10 a.m. the firefighters were sifting through the ashes left in the basement looking for bones but they claimed they couldn't find any. Nor could they find any human remains anywhere in the house. Chief Morris suggested that the blaze had been hot enough to fully cremate the bodies. A state police inspector attributed the fire to faulty wiring. Despite finding no remains, the coroner's office issued five death certificates just before New Year's Day, attributing the deaths to fire or suffocation. Among the jurors at the coroner's inquest that determined the cause of the fire to be faulty wiring was the man who had threatened George that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed for his anti-Mussolini statements. The chief told George to leave the site alone for further investigation, but after four days, George and Jenny couldn't stand the sight of it anymore, so he bulldozed five feet of dirt over it with the intention of converting it to a memorial garden. Not long after, George and Jenny began to question some of the suspicious circumstances surrounding the fire. A telephone repairman told them that the house's phone line had not been burned through in the fire as they'd assumed, but that someone had climbed the 14-foot pole and cut the line. Police arrested a man who had been caught stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire. The man claimed that he had been the one to cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but he denied having anything to do with setting the fire nor did the man have any explanation why he would want to cut any of the utility lines in the first place. Even more suspicious, although the thief was in police custody, no records exist of his identity today or what happened to him afterwards. Something else suspicious was that even though the electrical wiring was determined to be the cause of the fire, the power had continued working even as the solders fled the house. When they ran out the door, their Christmas lights were still on, If the cause of the fire had been faulty wiring, why had the lights remained on? Jenny also wasn't satisfied with the fire chief's explanation that the fire had been hot enough to completely cremate the children's remains. She read a newspaper account of a similar house fire that happened around the same time that killed a family of seven. Only in that case, authorities were able to recover the skeletal remains of all seven victims. Not only that, but in the solder home... They were able to recover many of the household appliances that should have been completely consumed in the blaze but many of them remained recognizable it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper Jenny conducted her own experiments, setting fire to an assortment of chicken bones, beef joints, and pork chop bones to see if the flames would completely consume them. In each experiment, she was left with a heap of charred bone. An employee at a crematorium told her that bones still remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. It only took 45 minutes for the solder house to be consumed. Further details didn't add up. George found the ladder he normally kept leaning against the house, lying in a culvert a substantial distance away. And the only excuse George could come up with why his trucks had refused to start that night was sabotage. Although years later, one of George's son-in-laws would suggest that perhaps George simply flooded the engines in a panic. During the spring thaw, George's daughter Sylvia found a small, hard, dark, green rubber ball-like object in the brush near the house. George examined it, recalling what his wife had said about hearing what sounded like something striking the roof and rolling off. George believed the object was part of some sort of incendiary device, like the sort of pineapple bomb used in warfare. Further adding weight to George's theory was a statement by a bus driver who was passing through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve, who claimed he had seen people throwing balls of fire at the house. Then there were the reports that kept coming in of people who claimed to have seen the missing children during and after the fire. A woman came forward who said she had been watching the fire from the side of the road when a car passed right by her, inside of which she could see the missing children staring back at her. Another witness claimed to have served the children breakfast the following morning at a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston more than 50 miles away. The witness said she had also observed a car with Florida license plates in the tourist court at the same time. Yet another woman claimed she had seen four of the five children a week after the fire while she was working at a Charleston hotel. She recalled that the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. The party registered and stayed together in one large hotel room with several beds. They arrived at the hotel around midnight, and the woman attempted to make friendly conversation with the children. But the man acted hostile toward her and cut her off. They checked out the next morning, and she never saw them again. In 1947, George and Jenny turned to the FBI for assistance. They sent a letter to the Bureau, and they received a reply from J. Edgar Hoover, who declined to help unless the local authorities specifically requested it. But the local police and fire chief declined the offer. Next, the Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley. Tinsley is the one who discovered that one of the members of the coroner's jury was actually the man who had threatened George's life. He also heard a strange story about Fire Chief F.J. Morris. Although the man claimed he had found no remains, he supposedly confided to a local priest that he had discovered a heart in the ashes and that he'd buried the heart in a metal box to avoid bringing further hardship to the family. Tinsley persuaded Morris to show him the spot where he buried the box. Tinsley took the organ to the local funeral director, who inspected it and determined that it was a piece of beef liver untouched by fire. As the years went on, further tips and clues continued to come in. George came across a newspaper photo of some New York school children and was convinced one of them was his daughter Betty. He drove to Manhattan in search of the girl, but her parents refused to let him speak to her. In 1949, the Sodders hired a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter to conduct another search of the fire scene. Hunter did a thorough excavation and the work crew uncovered a number of small objects, including some damaged coins, a partly burned dictionary, and a few shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent the shards to the Smithsonian Institution for further examination. The Smithsonian concluded that the vertebrae were human, and that they'd most likely come from a teenage boy around 14 years old. But the vertebrae showed no signs of having been exposed to fire. The Smithsonian report also stated that it was odd that they were the only pieces of bone found. Considering that the house burned for less than an hour, they would have expected several sets of full human skeletons to be found. The report concluded that the bones were likely contained within the pile of dirt George had used to fill in the site. After the Smithsonian got involved, two hearings were held at the state capitol, after which the governor and state police superintendent declared that the search was hopeless for the children, that the matter was closed. But George and Jenny refused to give up. They erected a billboard along Route 16 with the children's photos and ages, offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to their safe return. They would soon increase that amount to $10,000. A letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis who claimed the oldest daughter, Martha, was living in a local convent. Another tip came from a patron at a Texas bar who claimed to have overheard some incriminating conversation about a long-ago fire on Christmas Eve in West Virginia. Someone in Florida claimed to have knowledge that the children were staying with a distant relative of Jenny. George traveled the country chasing down lead after lead, but always returned empty-handed. More than 20 years later, in 1968, Jenny found an envelope addressed to her stuffed inside their mailbox. It had a Kentucky postmark, but no return address. Inside was a photo of a dark-haired man in his mid-twenties, with a handwritten note on the back that said, Louis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, and some letters and numbers. George and Jenny both thought the man in the photo bore a strong resemblance to their son, Louis, who had been nine at the time of the fire. They hired another private investigator and sent him to Kentucky to follow up on the lead, but they never heard from him again. The Sodders were afraid that if they published the note or the location of the town in the postmark, someone might harm their son. They instead changed the billboard to include the photo of the man, and they hung an enlarged version over their fireplace. George went to his grave never knowing whether his children really perished in that fire or if they had been abducted. He died the following year in 1968. Jenny lived until 1989, during which time she always wore black as a sign of mourning. The billboard finally came down in the 1980s. Jenny's children and grandchildren continued the search and developed a few theories of their own. The surviving Sodder children, along with some local Fayetteville residents, came to believe that the Sicilian Mafia had been attempting to extort money from George Sodder and that the person, or persons who stole the children, had done so to save them from the fire. Some people believe the children were spirited away to Italy for their own safety, where they were raised by someone else under assumed names. Some modern investigators believe that the solder children really did burn up in the fire, and that their remains were consumed in the smoldering basement. The house had been heated by two coal stoves, and some people have suggested coal in the basement helped the cremation process along. The truth is, though, like a lot of cases of this nature, we'll probably never know for certain what happened to the solder children. As time goes on, the case of the solder children, like the dying embers of that fire so many years ago, have grown cold. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much to all my listeners for helping make this podcast a success. If you want to help us continue to grow, tell your friends and family about us and subscribe and download us on iTunes. We're also always available on Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks again.